Welcome to Skim This. There's a high-profile murder trial now underway in Minneapolis. Derek Chauvin is the former police officer accused of murdering George Floyd. And his trial represents a defining moment for a lot of Americans amid cries for racial equity and justice. We'll tell you what we can expect in the days to come and break down America's weak record when it comes to convicting police officers. Also on the show, we'll talk teens and COVID vaccines, why Georgia is in hot water with big brands, and why some Amazon employees in Alabama have gotten under Jeff Bezos' skin. And later, we'll bring you the latest on the dire situation in Myanmar, almost two months after a military coup. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. After the death of George Floyd last May, the country and the world cried out for racial justice, and people hit the streets to protest. Now, police brutality and mistreatment of Black Americans by law enforcement is being judged in a courtroom. This week in Minneapolis, Derek Chauvin's trial began. He's the officer accused of killing 46-year-old George Floyd when he pinned him to the ground and knelt on his neck for about nine minutes last Memorial Day. Opening statements from the trial presented two very different accounts of what occurred. On May 25th of 2020, Mr. Derek Chauvin betrayed this badge. You will learn that Derek Chauvin did exactly what he had been trained to do over the course of his 19-year career. There's a lot at stake in this trial. To make sense of what we can expect, we called up Sharon Fairley. She's a law professor at the University of Chicago. And she told us it's a big deal that this case even got to trial in the first place. Obviously, it's big and important just to start with that the officer was actually indicted and charged and is facing trial because we know that even with a lot of cases where there's video evidence that shows that to us at least as the viewer that the officer did something very very wrong a lot of times those cases don't even get charged they don't even come to trial chauvin who was fired from the minneapolis police department is now on trial for second degree murder third degree murder and second degree manslaughter while that sounds like a lot of different kinds of charges, Fairley told us the trial basically boils down to two questions. One is whether or not Officer Shelvin used excessive force, whether or not the force that he used in that moment was reasonable under the circumstances. And then the other big question that's going to be asked is whether or not what the officer did actually caused the death of Mr. Floyd. Um, and so you're going to see a lot of time and energy spent around facts trying to determine those two issues. People are predicting this trial will last about a month. Jury selection alone lasted for around two weeks. And because of how contentious the pre-trial process has been, Fairley is expecting. It's going to be a slugfest. As for the cases both sides are presenting, the defense is arguing that Chauvin acted appropriately. And they're expected to say that George Floyd's pre-existing medical history, specifically a heart condition, and his use of substances, including methamphetamine and fentanyl, contributed to his death. But Fairley told us the prosecution, aka the people arguing that Chauvin is guilty for Floyd's death, have two things going for them. What's really helpful in this case, and has actually proven to be helpful in the other case in, in which you've seen actual convictions, is that there actually is video, right? There's video evidence to show pretty much what happened. Sometimes you get video, but you only get a piece of the incident. But here we have the full eight or nine or 10 minutes 
that we see of the interaction between Officer Chauvin and, and Mr. Floyd. And so that's going to be absolutely very, very important evidence. But then we're going to have a number of witnesses who were there who are going to be talking about the context of what happened, because again, all that's going to factor into the question of whether or not the officer used reasonable force, right? And so we're going to have witnesses talking about what happened leading up to the where the video starts, the interaction between the officer and Mr. Floyd. As Fairley mentioned, having video evidence has actually helped prosecutors get convictions in other trials of police officers. One major reason having that video evidence and witness testimony can help is because the standard of proof in criminal trials like this is high. We all know that in our criminal justice system, in order to put somebody in jail for what they did, you have to prove that a crime was committed beyond a reasonable doubt. And that is often a very, very difficult standard to meet. Even where there's video evidence of what the officer did, the legal concept governing use of force is not an on and off switch. It's not a black and white question. It's a totality of the circumstances question, right? You're looking at all the circumstances around the incident and leading up to the incident that will help you assess whether or not what the officer did was wrong. And so oftentimes that creates a little door for a defense attorney to open to, to create reasonable doubt. Adding to that doubt, there's this anecdotal evidence that juries really believe, you know, what officers say. They, they give them a, a high degree of credibility. Which could explain why, especially in trials without video evidence or witnesses, America doesn't convict many police officers. According to one tracker, there are approximately 1,000 fatal police shootings each year. But since 2005, one researcher found that just over 120 officers have actually been arrested. And of those, only 44 have been convicted, with only seven convicted for murder. Those statistics mean that thousands of people feel like they or their communities were denied justice. And for a lot of people, it's yet another painful reminder of how our justice system is inequitable. But that hasn't stopped a lot of people from emotionally investing in this trial, which the prosecution's lawyer called a referendum on how far America has come in its fight for equality and justice. This criminal process, this trial, is an opportunity to have the public brought to closure around that. And that's why it's so important. That's why, you know, criminal trials are public matters, because they want the public to be able to see how justice is meted out and how it's done. What I always hope for is that people will see this trial, they will observe this trial, and hopefully the trial will proceed in a manner where people will be convinced that justice was done, whichever way it comes out. They will understand, you know, how the jury reached their conclusion based on the evidence that was presented. That's the best we can hope for, right, is to hope that the trial is conducted in a fair and equitable manner. And although all eyes are on a courtroom in Minneapolis, Fairley told us it's important to keep in mind that beyond the criminal justice system, there are other ways to hold police officers accountable. The criminal justice system is just one piece of the pie when it comes to holding officers accountable. There's the civil process, right, where people sue, victims of police misconduct can sue and hold them accountable in the 
context of a civil matter. And then there's the administrative process. We are seeing a lot of change, just like we're seeing change writ large or conversations about police reform more broadly. The conversations that were happening in the last year that you couldn't even imagine happening as, as recently as five years ago. These questions around funding, the questions around communities really digging in and engaging on use of force policies, saying we don't want choke holds being acceptable in our community, those kinds of questions. And so the administrative process is, is where I actually believe that there's the most accountability, possibility of accountability. It's obvious it's a lower evidentiary standard. It's you know, proof by a preponderance of evidence. And in many cases, we have jurisdictions that are creating independent bodies to actually evaluate those cases and bring charges against officers. And so sometimes we're able to see more success in holding officers accountable in that context compared to the criminal justice system. As Chauvin's trial continues, the skim will keep you updated on what you need to know. To sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. Hey Skimmers, we're excited to tell you about another show that focuses on real-world stories you need to know. Undistracted is a weekly intersectional feminist podcast hosted by activist, educator, and former host of Pod Save the People, Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Brittany will be speaking to the biggest thought leaders in today's social justice movements, from politicians and activists to artists and athletes. Plus, she'll catch you up on the latest feminist news you need to know. Undistracted comes out weekly on Thursdays. So subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts to join the conversation. All right, let's get to a couple of the headlines from the week's news and give you a little bit of context. First up, the World Health Organization has published a long-awaited report on the origins of COVID-19 in Wuhan, China. Here's the context. Since COVID-19 first emerged, we've all wondered, where did it come from? Now, WHO scientists say the answer is most likely from animals, not a research lab. According to that lab leak theory, a secretive lab in Wuhan that was conducting research on coronaviruses could be to blame for unleashing a global pandemic. Former President Donald Trump promoted that theory. And while there's little evidence to support it, Critics say it's not easy to trust this report's findings either, since China limited what investigators could see on the ground in Wuhan. This week, the US and 12 other countries said the world deserved greater transparency from China. And even though they stopped short of accusing China of a cover-up, if you thought questions about COVID's origins are gonna magically go away after this report, think again. Okay, our next headline. Pfizer says its COVID-19 vaccine is safe and 100% effective for teens. Here's the context. Until last week, it was kind of a mystery whether the COVID-19 vaccines being given to adults would actually be safe for young people too. But now Pfizer has become the first drug maker to say, hey, this shot is good to go for adolescents aged 12 to 15. That could provide relief for parents, teachers, and babysitters around the country who are hoping kids can stay safe at school and start resuming activities with their friends. And even though the vaccine isn't available yet for young people, experts and immunologists are giving Pfizer an A for effort. Meanwhile, other vaccine producers like Moderna are also running clinical trials on kids, hoping Pfizer isn't the only vaccine to get a gold star. All right, next headline. 
More pushback after the governor signed a controversial election reform bill into law. Opponents now threatening to boycott the state and some of the biggest corporations based here. So here's what's going on here. A week after Georgia's governor signed a controversial voting bill, the state could soon face economic consequences. That voting law adds more ID requirements for absentee votes, limits ballot drop boxes, and could restrict early voting hours. Though with hardly any evidence of voter fraud in last year's elections, critics say this bill could seriously disenfranchise voters of color. And now, execs from some of America's biggest brands like Microsoft and Coca-Cola are speaking out against the law. Supporters of an economic boycott of Georgia say the threat of an actual boycott could move the needle and actually cause Texas to rethink a controversial transgender bathroom bill several years ago. But not every critic of the voting bill agrees. Former Georgia politician Stacey Abrams says boycotting Georgia would hurt the same people affected by the new law. All right, last headline. On Wednesday, New York became the 15th state to legalize recreational marijuana. Here's what you need to know. Anyone over 21 can now legally possess up to three ounces of marijuana in New York and light up anywhere it's already legal to smoke. Plus, anyone arrested for things like possession that are now legal will have those charges expunged from their criminal record. That's a big deal, since Black and Latino individuals were disproportionately arrested for marijuana offenses. But some say this all smells kind of funny, since a similar version of this legalization bill had been around since 2018, leading some to wonder if Governor Cuomo chose now to get this passed to distract from multiple allegations of sexual misconduct against him. Whatever the case, New York says it needs at least 18 months to write the rules for people to actually buy or sell weed. So be patient. Earlier this week, a tiny but historic election came to a close in Bessemer, Alabama. It's a town on the outskirts of Birmingham, and almost since the pandemic began, it's been home to an Amazon warehouse. Last summer, workers there were inspired to unionize after watching Black Lives Matter protests shut down streets around the country. They saw a lot of people were in the streets advocating using their rights, which kind of inspired some workers to want to exercise their own labor rights in the workplace. That's Rebecca Rainey, a labor reporter at Politico. A huge share of these workers are minorities, black and brown women. And so they're saying, hey, if people think that they can treat us this way at work, you know, what does that say about how society views us? And if we are not going to accept these conditions going on in the world, the racial injustice and the police brutality issues, why should we accept them in our workplace? Amazon employs around 1.2 million people globally and is the second largest employer in the U.S. where none of its workers are in a union. And Rainey says Amazon wants to keep things that way. It's no secret that Amazon does not want this facility to unionize. It costs businesses money to have to negotiate with their workers. The workers described having to go to union education meetings. They could be an hour long and they would talk about how the union could potentially be bad for the workplace. Workers said that when people voiced opposition during the meetings, they would disperse them and then go and follow up with people on the work floor. They said that they were calling people at home about the union. Amazon's been pointing out it already pays at least $15 an hour, which is more than double the federal minimum wage. And it says it offers warehouse workers health insurance. 
but workers say they still get bills for medical appointments and that wages are still lower than the average for the region. Plus, there are reports of grueling conditions in Amazon's warehouse. They're talking about working eight to 10 hours and only getting two 15-minute breaks. It takes like five or 10 minutes to get to the break areas where they can be, to get to the bathrooms. So by the time that you're at the restroom, like half of your break is already up. Workers talked about getting out of their shifts and just sitting in their car for 15 minutes because they're so exhausted from being on their feet constantly. If they're taking too long to complete a task, if they're taking too long on a break, which could eventually lead to their suspension. They said that if they showed up a minute late, they would be docked for the whole hour. While Amazon looks like a 21st century business at the center of a digital economy, it has hundreds of thousands of employees in the U.S. working in warehouses. And like warehouse and factory workers did a century ago, Amazon workers in Bessemer are trying to use an old-school tactic of labor organizing to improve conditions and the terms of their employment. It used to be that one in three American workers were part of a labor union back in the 1950s, but now, labor union participation is at an all-time low. So could this be a turning point? Votes are now being counted, and it could take a few days before we know whether these Amazon workers are about to make history by becoming the company's first unionized employees. But no matter who comes out on top in this fight, these employees in Alabama have made global headlines and have put the world's richest man on notice. And Rainey says this vote could lead to a wave of unionization efforts at other big companies we've relied on during the pandemic, like Target or Walmart. It shows the power of workers, like it's a great success story. And if it doesn't work at Amazon? It becomes kind of this lightning rod or galvanizing moment to advance federal labor reform. Regardless of what happens in this election, it, it's almost like a really great public service announcement for collective bargaining rights. Like if these workers can scare Amazon into tweeting at Bernie Sanders, other workers can do that in other workplaces. All right, it's time for this week's global update. And we're going to check in on Myanmar. It's a country in Southeast Asia that borders Thailand. It's also a country with a pretty undemocratic past that was trying to find its democratic footing. In elections late last year, candidates with ties to the military lost badly, raising hopes a civilian government was gaining strength. That is until the morning of February 1st. Without warning, in the middle of the night, Myanmar's military made its move. The military has carried out a coup d'etat in Myanmar. Hundreds of officials are confined inside government housing compounds. The military accuses the government of failing to act on claims of voter fraud in last November's election. In a matter of hours, the democratic process was thrown out, even though the military claims will go back to democracy in a year. But its behavior since the coup, as soldiers increasingly use violence to stop anti-coup protests, makes civil war, not a return to democracy, feel more likely. A young woman has died in Myanmar after she was shot by police. It's the first death among opponents of the military coup. News is emerging that security forces have shot dead eight people. Security forces shot dead at least 20 people on Monday, after 74 were killed a day earlier. It didn't feel like things in Myanmar could get worse until last weekend, when security forces warned, if you keep protesting, we'll shoot you. And they did just that. 
As thousands of soldiers were on parade in the nation's capital, their colleagues on the streets opened fire. One by one, they carried and counted their injured and dead. This is the deadliest day since the military staged its coup. Uh, there was no attempt whatsoever to minimise casualties. Videos we've seen circulating on social media show both police and soldiers gloating over the fact that they intend to go out and kill people. By some reports, 140 people were killed by the Myanmar government last Saturday alone. That brings the civilian death toll since the February coup to more than 500. And even children are increasingly being killed as the military does everything it can to stop protests. Theoretically, these actions could have consequences for Myanmar and its military, but that largely depends on its big next-door neighbor, China. A prominent human rights group in Myanmar has said killing kids and innocent civilians is part of the military's attempt to terrorize Myanmar's population. It wants the situation referred to the International Criminal Court, where military generals and soldiers could be punished for attacking civilians. But that requires the support of countries on the UN Security Council that typically reject human rights investigations. Countries like, you guessed it, China. With a global response, maybe off the table, the US is testing out some punishments of its own. It sanctioned several Myanmar generals and this week suspended its trade relationship. Sounds big, right? Well, it's mostly symbolic, since it's China, not the US, that's Myanmar's biggest trading partner. And so far, there's been little sign China is ready to impose the kind of economic sanctions Myanmar's generals might pay attention to. Meanwhile, desperate for safety, thousands of people are now trying to flee Myanmar for neighboring countries. Others are sticking around and risking violence and death to keep speaking out against the coup. Their next move? Garbage strikes. Literally, dumping garbage at intersections in the capital to say, basically, how do you think the coup smells now? It's safe to say that over the past year, we've all developed a few new habits. Maybe you bought a yoga mat for the first time, or you've gotten really into your morning coffee routine. But not all habits are ones that we want to keep. We asked thousands of you what quarantine habit you're trying to shake, and the number one response we got was snacking. Here's the thing. Snacking is good for us, and often necessary. So we called up Krista Linares, a registered dietitian and nutritionist, to help us learn how we can snack smarter. I want to start by saying that the number one response that we got from our audience is that people feel like they're snacking too much. And I'm curious if you observe that people, especially women, tend to overanalyze their eating or snacking habits and why that is. You know, is it that people are actually eating more right now or is it that they're just thinking about the fact that they're eating more right now? I think that there is a lot of media attention and a lot of messaging out there that calls people to kind of look at their own habits. And sometimes that can be positive, but sometimes it can kind of lead to this notion that we need to achieve perfection with food and that we should always be analyzing every last thing we do. And when the pandemic first hit, there was a lot of diet messaging out there saying like, avoid the pandemic 15 or things like that, that I found pretty damaging. And it was just kind of giving people another thing to stress out about during that time. And for someone who's personally felt unhappy with how they've received those messages and processed those messages internally, what would you say to them? I would say that 
those messages are marketing something and people are trying to get through to you however they can. And someone's trying to put another priority on you that you might not necessarily have. And what you need to do is you need to focus on your priorities, right? And for most people, that's, you know, break time, time for themselves, things like that, and kind of getting back to that. I'm hoping you can walk me through the ways that snacking can be beneficial and when it runs the risk of not being. Like, is snacking inherently bad for us? No, snacking is really very useful for the majority of people. Most people need about one or two snacks a day. Some might need three or more, really kind of depending on their schedule and their lifestyle. And snacking can be really useful to avoid energy crashes in the middle of the day. A lot of people talk about getting so hungry that like they feel fatigued, they can't think straight, they can't make smart decisions when it comes to their next meal. And so really we're trying to avoid that kind of bottom level of hunger that kind of makes people hit the emergency button. And a well-planned snack can be really useful for that and it can give people kind of a better, more clear headspace when it comes to food. It can make people feel feel more productive during the day. And from a physiological standpoint, it kind of keeps our blood sugar more regulated, especially if people have any sort of insulin resistance or diabetes. On that point, when our body is telling us that we're hungry, what is it usually looking for? So for the most part, it's going to be getting our body the carbs that it needs. Our body really prefers carbs for frontline energy. And we've been kind of trained not to think that, but carbs are what we use most efficiently to get energy to our bodies. And so it's going to be carbs and then something to kind of help slow down how quickly we digest those carbs. The way that I simplify it for people is by saying that carbs are energy. And all other food sources like protein and fat can be energy and do become energy, but carbs are really like the best energy source for our body. And then the other food sources are kind of what we use to feel full and to make sure that we don't run through that energy too quickly. A lot of people told us, hey, work from home is really hard for me because I work really close to my kitchen. And for me personally, I also work very close to my kitchen and I'm observed that Proximity can definitely work in your favor or not. Do you have any advice about how we can make that proximity to food work for us instead of against us? So what I've noticed with people saying that they feel like they're snacking a lot more while working from home is that it's really not about the food. What I'm noticing is that it's either people are feeling like the boundaries between work and life are so blurry now that they don't really feel like they can take a break. And so they're kind of using the activity of getting up and getting a snack as that stand-in for a break. Whereas in an office, maybe they would go to the water cooler, maybe they would talk to a colleague, um, or they have this kind of hard five o'clock leaving the office time, and we don't really have that now. So people are kind of trying to find any reason to step away. Um, Or it could be a stress response, right? And they're feeling the stress reaction, and then the food's right there. Right. So there's a lot of reasons that people might be snacking more and it's kind of helped along by the fact that they're very close to their kitchens, but it's usually not about the food itself. And then the other part of your question was how can proximity help us? I think it really helps with having time to put together a structured meal. Uh, It doesn't have to be something super fancy, but if you're right there for your kitchen, it's a lot more likely that you can put together like a salad or an omelet or something that is pretty easy and pretty balanced pretty quickly. Our audience has given us a lot of feedback saying they feel like they've been drinking more, staying up later and watching a lot more TV. And 
snacking has become central to those habits that they've developed over COVID and over quarantine. I wonder, do you have any advice about how people can be more intentional about their snacking? So this is when I would coach people to be more intentional about their snacks. So I would coach them to do simple things like making sure their snack is on a plate and trying to structure it like a mini meal um, so that that takes kind of that mindlessness out of it. And it doesn't just feel like you're just kind of repeatedly eating like the same couple handfuls of the same snack. And it's a little bit more structured that way. And then again, bringing in, if they notice that they're always having a snack at the same time, that's a really good time to ask those questions again about what are you feeling in that moment? Is it that you've established this cue that turning on the TV means it's time to grab a snack, but you're not actually hungry? Or is it that you do this at six o'clock every day and you're always hungry at six o'clock? Those are very different answers. What are some actionable steps that our audience can use every day to feel more comfortable with their snacking habits? Yeah, so I think one is to try as much as we can to make sure that we are getting our three meals a day in. Because a lot of times when we wind up just kind of more grazing throughout the day, a lot of times that happens because we've skipped a meal at some point. And so the more we can sit down and be conscious about the fact that we're eating our meals, the less likely we're kind of going to be to consistently graze and consistently snack without being aware of it. On the point of just like the three meals you know, how has being in a predominantly work from home or just all the time at home environment changed the way people are thinking about those three meals? So I'd say it's about 50-50. A lot of people have found that they have more time to make a meal for breakfast and lunch, for example. But then a lot of people are feeling the exact opposite, that with those blurry boundaries between work and life, they're feeling like they have less time now for food. It's not like they can step outside of their house and go to the cafe. It's more like they have to find the time to make it for themselves. And so people are feeling like they're working through lunch more often, or they don't have external cues to eat a meal. And so they don't have their coworker knocking on their desk saying, hey, do you want to grab lunch? If they're just kind of working straight through it. Yeah. Something I feel a lot is I'm kind of tired by the end of the day and the boundaries between work and home are already so blurred, as you just mentioned, that I feel really tired when it's time to make dinner. And so making a dinner that is like delicious and filling is not my priority and like making a dinner as a means to an end is. Do you have any advice on how to combat that feeling? Absolutely. There's definitely a lot of emotional exhaustion and mental exhaustion that's happening for people right now. And we forget that our emotional and mental energy is also necessary for daily tasks like making meals. So I would say the main thing is making sure that you are giving yourself breaks, giving yourself time to recharge, doing the things that you need to do for yourself. And then also there's no shame in getting meals that are kind of semi-homemade or taking some shortcuts in terms of pre-chopped vegetables or frozen vegetables, whatever shortcut you need to take to get the meal on the table is perfectly okay. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I think there's a lot of, everyone is obsessed with like, I've made this completely from scratch. And there's been a lot of like meal flexing, I would say on my Instagram page. So I'm very relieved to hear that. I'm curious do you schedule when you're going to eat your meals? And do you recommend that for people? I recommend it for my people who struggle to take the time to eat or find themselves getting so in the zone with their work day that they tend to skip through, skip through meals. I absolutely want them to schedule it, block it off on their calendar, make them 
make themselves unavailable for appointments. Um, if people don't really have that problem, then I would want them to be okay with listening to their body and their hunger cues a little bit more, but it can be a useful tool if we kind of find ourselves getting so in the zone and forgetting to eat. Over the next month, we're going to take on a number of other pandemic habits that you told us you want to make or break. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. Thank you.